It's the question that drives us. What is the podcast matrix? Get your entire podcast library hosted at the podcast matrix. What is the podcast matrix.com? This is the Versus Machine Podcast, a comparison of great things. The Versus Machine takes on two works of art, one source material and one adaptation, and processes it through to discover the differences and similarities of the two. Whether those differences are good or bad is up to you. After all, it's what happens when you transform one medium into another. It's time to engage the Versus Machine. Machine is on, and it's time again to run two items through it. I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, one of your hosts. I'm Mike Wilkerson, your other host. Mike, it's great to be a part of the Versus Machine. We've yeah. got a lot to get through, but first, before we do that, let's jump right into some housekeeping. Yeah. The Ghostbusters Perspective Review. Now, Mike, you and I are no strangers to uh, horror and scary things. Uh, mm-hmm. Not too long ago, we actually did a perspective review of the original Ghostbusters we from did. 1984. Yeah. Well, we did a review of that, not because it was some great epic horror film. We did it because, almost as a result of me not being too big into horror, we did it because it was a comedy slash horror film. Right, right. And it, it continues to this day to be one of the reasons why I love that movie so much, not because it's some epic, giant, kick-ass horror film. Mm, right, 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 right. It has a lot of really great horror elements. In fact, there's some that are, you know, they're almost over-the-top horror elements, but they're they're wrapped in the tortilla of comedy. Yeah. And so they're knocked down a notch, and that's what that's what allows me to take it in. I love that. I, mm. I love being able to wrap one thing in another and then have a completely different taste. And that's what I really enjoyed about Ghostbusters. Was Ghostbusters was definitely a prime example of comedy horror. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in listening to our take on the 1984 Ghostbusters film, we will definitely be leaving you a link to that episode in the show notes to this episode over at our website. You can go to twoguystalking.com forward slash Ghostbusters. Two Guys Talking Horror. What's that, Nick? Well, Mike, Two Guys Talking Horror is the other show that I host where I and a plethora of special guests. A growing number of hosts. Growing number. Yeah. Where we talk about the good, the bad, the ins, the outs, the highs and lows of the horror genre. Mm-hmm. And the whys. I, I think that's Most what Most importantly, me. the yeah. whys. Yeah. Because the horror genre, and, and I will have to say, it has been getting a resurgence over the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. But at one point in time, there was a stigma attached to it. Totally. If you were interested in horror movies, there was something wrong with you. Yeah, I agree with that. And you and I have known each other for quite a while, and I know you know that there is something wrong with me, <laughs> but it has nothing to do with horror movies and my love of them. Too well-known, too (laughs) well-known. If you're interested in even more horror detail, head on over to twoguystalkinghorror.com. We'll be sure to leave a link to the website in the show notes for this episode. The Versus Machine is all about education. Education of the source material, of the adaptation, and what happens when you take something from one medium and change it to another. 
Today we're sliding into the machine, Cycle of the Werewolf by Stephen King, published in 1983, versus Silver Bullet, screenplay by Stephen King, released October 11th, 1985. Now, Mike, I have read the story and I have watched the movie. I have read and watched multiple times. I, on the other hand, have only seen the movie today. I'm really excited that we're taking one of my favorite, I guess you would call it like a novella or a novel, novelette. I mean, it's a very short story. It's only about 130, 140 pages. Mm-hmm. You know what's funny about the, all of the Stephen King novellas slash novelettes slash whatever yeah. you want to call them? They are kind of their own genre. Yeah. I, I, and it's obviously because it's Stephen King. Well, yeah. But I think we could just call them Stephen King novels, and people would get it. Stephen King stories. Stories here. Yeah. Written by. Written by, yeah. A story written by Stephen King, and then they can discern whether it's long enough to be considered whatever it's supposed to be considered. Ironically enough, a lot of his shorter stories, I would like to know how many of his actual novels versus his short stories have been adapted. Mm. Because I feel like it's more short stories have been adapted into feature films than his actual full-blown novels. Mm. Now, one of the reasons why I picked this story and this film adaptation is because both are written by Stephen King. Mm. Stephen King did the the novella, published in 1983, Mm -hmm. and Hollywood, the the, the crank-a-movie-out machine, two years later in 85... We get Silver Bullet, and Stephen King Mm. wrote the screenplay for the film. Mm. So the interesting thing about this adaptation, the the source material in the adaptation is written by the same person. It's the same story, but it's also not the same story. And that's that's what blows my mind, and I can't wait to take you on this journey with me, Mike. I can't wait to hear it. Structure. Now, the book is actually broken into 12 chapters. Wow. Each chapter representing a month out of the year, Hmm. starting in January. So we go from January all the way to December. So it's the the cycle of the werewolf is a nightmare year for Tarker's Mill, Maine. Hmm. That already has a more interesting concept connotation, just hearing that. And another thing about the book, with it being separated into 12 chapters... It also comes with illustrations, uh, the and the illustrations are done by Bernie Wrightson, hmm. who is a phenomenal artist, has done a lot of work where comic books and other illustrations are concerned. Uh, not only is there an illustration for every chapter, but then there's a, a handful of more illustrations throughout each chapter, too. It's not like you just get one picture. Some of it's in black and white, some of it's in full-blown color. Absolutely amazing. And we'll make sure... To put a link in the show notes for this episode so that you can experience all of Bernie Wrightson's art because it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Now you take the movie. The movie seems to be broken down into probably about six, maybe seven months because when the movie starts, the narration informs us that the first kill, the first attack from the werewolf happened a month before school was letting out for the summer. Mm-hmm. So, so that right there, so that's May ish. Ish, yeah. Yeah. And then the film ends in the fall. So mm-hmm. that's that's a good six, maybe seven months. Sure. If I had to compare the two, the book paints a great picture of the town and how the town reacts. The town is a character. That's fair. That's fair. The movie the movie focuses on 
a handful of characters and that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, the town is just the backdrop. There's a couple of scenes that try and rope in the town and the cast of characters, well, yeah. Yeah. but nothing where it makes the town a, a, its own character, really. And Stephen King is very good at building up non-characters as characters. Yes, I agree with that. I, I, I feel in most of the books that I've read, I haven't read them all, but in most of the stories that, that I've read that he's been a part of, he can not only can he build a character, but he can build a location, mm-hmm. and you could feel. Not only can you feel like it's a real place that you could be, but it, you do feel like you're there because he's such a great writer when it comes to description. Yeah, there's no there's no question that he is the king of adverb. You yes, know, there's there there are pictures painted by Stephen King in his in all of his literature. Right. That. Every now and then, they're able to translate onto the silver screen. It doesn't wow. happen often. Not often. But when it does happen, and it's electric, it really is a magic moment on the screen. And I don't know that we had any of those inside of this film, but it has happened in other films. Yes. I have a soft spot for the film, because it came out in the mid-'80s. I was a huge fan of werewolf movies okay. growing up. Yep. And in the 80s, you only had a handful of them. Mm-hmm. You had Silver Bullet, you had An American Werewolf in London, and you had The Howling. Each one of them, very different from each other. What about Teen Wolf? Crickets. Crickets, Mike. You, you, you brought crickets with you. Hey, Michael at J. You, Fox, man. What least can you, I say? At least you didn't bring up Teen Wolf 2. No, but you just did. Characters. Marty Kozlov. In the book, Marty doesn't appear until halfway through slowly becoming the focal character. Hmm. In the movie, Marty is the main character, even though the story is told by his sister Jane in narration. Yeah. In the book, he's mentioned as the boy in the wheelchair in earlier chapters, but he doesn't even become a character until the July chapter, yeah. when he's upset about no 4th of July because the full it's the full moon killer or the moonlight killer, something like that in the book. Fourth of July happens to fall on a full moon, so can't have any uh, can't have any fun, can't have any fireworks. Interesting. I wonder if that's just because Corey Haim was the lead in that role, and so you've got to give him some more meat, and so they made him the what amounts to the lead character inside of this, where well, the uncle is pushing him, he's pushing himself with his own machine. He gets his own little platform. To, does he have his own little platform on the bridge? Later on inside no, the story, no. See, I wonder if maybe there's that's no it then. there's a, there's no mechanical wheelchair whatsoever in the book. Wow, none whatsoever. So it's just sister whipping out a wheelchair and he jumps in it and and here we go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's but all. But there is a wheelchair mentioned then. There is just a wheelchair. Not a motorized I mean, one. Right, no motorized wheelchair whatsoever. Mm. That was something specifically created for the movie, and and we'll touch on that once we get to that. Okay. But the the fact that Marty, as of halfway through the book. Once he has the encounter with the beast and survives, then for the rest of the book, he's mentioned more and then becomes a focal character mm. leading up to the big confrontation in the final chapter of the book. Yeah. Similar to this, only he is the character that we're following throughout the whole thing, thanks to the narration from his sister. Yeah. Jane Coslaw. In the book... Jane is hardly mentioned. She appears when Marty needs to be reminded he's a cripple. Mm. Uh, In the movie, Jane is the typical older sister Mm -hmm. who joins Marty's crusade to destroy the werewolf. 
that's one of the things that struck me about this film too is I, I a little bit of background I don't I don't remember much of any of this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I originally thought I had seen it, but I'm starting to think that perhaps I saw like the Howling or a mix of that and Wolfen. and Wolfen. Yeah, yeah. We and, were talking about that before we started the, the and, recording tonight. And so I I'm not entirely sure I actually have ever seen this film. And so when it started with a with a female narrator voiceover, well, I was almost certain that I'd never seen it, mostly because. It's rare. Right. Especially back then. There just weren't a whole lot of movies that started with the narration of a woman on mm-hmm. top of everything. Especially then, when the woman isn't the main character. Right, right, right. And and really doesn't... She actually is brought back into that narration several times during the film. Yeah. She's not set as the main character inside mm-hmm. of it. So that's that's very interesting. Well, it's also one of those things to where when it starts, okay, you know nothing's going to happen to Jane because Jane is telling the, telling story. the story. Right. But that doesn't mean everybody else makes it out. Right. So if you've never read the book, you don't know if Marty or even Uncle Red is going to make it out alive. Mm-hmm. You just know that Jane is fine because she's the one telling you this story. Right. And the fact that you have not only a secondary character, but, a, again, a female character doing the narration, very rare mm-hmm. back then. And we're talking 1985. Mm-hmm. You, d- you did not see that. Right. But I, I feel when Stephen King was making the screenplay for writing the screenplay for this, maybe he realized that Jane needed to be an, an important character since she wasn't in the book. In the book, Marty has a, a whole house full of family members. Not only does he have mom and dad and sister Jane, he also has grandpa. There's an old grandpa that lives there as well, mm-hmm. and Uncle Red and... and Uncle Red's not even called Uncle Red in the book. He's called Uncle Al. Comes and goes as he pleases throughout the, throughout the story. You know what I'm thinking? This is straight off of the showcase of the original Terminator film. And in the original Terminator film, while it's not a, a, a lead female, the female character is put center form mm. inside of that movie. So I wonder if maybe in the adaptation of the screenplay, that was taken into consideration and so they made a woman forefront. That's a good observation. Yeah. Uh, Whenever anything jumps from the page and jumps into a screenplay, especially when more often than not it is not written by the same person. M- right. There's usually an adaptation that's done from the original story by somebody else entirely that yeah. had nothing to do with any of the the Usually concept. three or four different yeah, nobodies. Well, especially now. Yeah. 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 And then it's kind of a you know Dr. Frankenstein script that comes from whatever was the original story. Mm. I, I, I really do think that maybe that played a part in it because that was a huge piece of movie making back in 1984. You get to the end of the original Terminator yeah. and you have an incredibly powerful female character that everybody left the theater cheering. Well, There's... I'll even take you a couple of years earlier. Let's talk about Alien. Mm. Sigourney Weaver, the mm-hmm. Ripley character, not so the main not, character, yeah. not the main character of mm-hmm. that movie. Right. Not even in second in command. Mm -hmm. But as the story progresses, not only is she put in charge, but then she is, again, the final girl. Yeah. Very similar to Sarah Connor in that first Terminator movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's all very possible. And I, I really endear myself to all of those stories, not just because it's a woman lead, but because all of them are endearing. Regardless of whether it's a female or male role, they made the storytelling the centerpiece and not just the big robot monster. Right. The The big robot monster inside of Terminator was absolutely a, a piece of the formula, 
But it was not the piece of the formula. It's the storytelling. Mm. You want John Connor to be protected, and to protect John Connor, you must make sure that Sarah Connor lives. And then we insert our hero, and then we have the battle between them, and then that story ends, and then you have another one. Yeah, right. That's what made that so endearing. One of the things from the book, it seems uh, King kind of kind of craps on Marty. It's like everybody kind of reminds Marty that he's handicapped. Mm-hmm. His sister being the, the biggest supporter of you're a cripple, why do you get everything that you want? It's just because you're a cripple. Mm-hmm. His mother, who in the book doesn't even have a name. It's just mom. Mm-hmm. Whereas dad, his dad actually has a name. Uh, dad is the old, hey, buddy boy, everything's going to be all right. Ha ha. And mom is just... Oh, you're so fragile. I, I, I don't know how to behave around you. Isn't that funny? Because I took this guy as the stepdad. I didn't even consider that was his dad. Oh, well, I mean, th- they really don't focus. In in the movie, the family doesn't even really have a big part to do with it, except for a handful of scenes. Mm-hmm. It's mostly about Marty, Jane, and Uncle Red. Mm-hmm. And, and really, that's all you need. Mm. Uncle Red. In the book, Uncle Red is called Uncle Al and is the only person Marty has to confide in. Mm. In the movie, Uncle Red is an alcoholic who treats Marty as an equal, even creating a souped-up motorized wheelchair called the Silver Bullet. Now, one thing that I did learn in my research for this podcast is the majority of Gary Bu- and Gary Busey plays Uncle Red. And this is one of my favorite Gary Busey roles ever. I wish I had an uncle like Gary Busey. As a matter of fact, I think I actually turned into an uncle like Gary Busey. But that's besides the point. Without the motorcycle accident. Well, yes, of course. What I learned is that Stephen King wrote Uncle Red one way, and Gary Busey pretty much about 80% improved his lines. Sure. And according to Stephen King... Gary Busey's improv made the character better. So when when the actual writer of the source material says that somebody else's ideas made the character even better, that's some high praise. Because usually writers don't like their work being messed with. Hence, why you actually have the man who wrote the original story creating the screenplay for it. There's a piece of that I think I would not take exception to, but... At this point, Gary Busey was huge in his career. This was his ascending, shining star yeah. right now inside of his inside of his career. And so, for Stephen King to look at it and go, "What, Gary Busey? Really? <laughs> well, that's excellent. You know, um, you know his improvisation of the lines that he did; those were excellent." I so don't know I, if he said excellent. He said made the character better. I, I think I think that that's a good move. We watch we watch this movie, at, and I'm sure half of what we heard come out of his mouth was not something that Stephen King. It wrote. was drunken improv. Let's be plain. <laughs> that whole thing of him supposedly being drunk, he was drunk. He was drunk during the entire shooting of the film. Hey, there's there, there's nothing wrong with method acting, sir. I have <laughs> I have actually been involved in method acting before. I don't I don't recommend it for the weak of heart. <laughs> but regardless of that. The differences, because that's what we're here to talk about, the differences. Mm -hmm. Uncle Al in Cycle of a Werewolf is very kind of matter of fact. Let's go, Cripple. Here you go. You you can't have a 4th of July. Well, I've given you a 4th of July. Here's here's a bag of fireworks. Have at it. Have your fun, but be safe. Whereas Uncle Red, 
Uncle Red has built the silver bullet. So at the beginning of the movie, we see Marty. Marty has a mechanical or a motorized wheelchair that, that looks like it has... It's a go-kart motor. <clears throat> well, I mean, it looks like the equivalent of something uh, you took off of a lawnmower. Right. right. Go-kart motor. But then, halfway through the movie, Uncle Red gives him the souped-up Silver Bullet Deluxe, mm-hmm. which, I mean, is, is basically a three-wheeled motorcycle. Sure. And, and that's another way that you get the name of your film rather than Cycle of a Werewolf, because th- there is no souped-up motorcycle-esque wheelchair in the book. Marty has a normal wheelchair. It's not like Marty can get away really fast. Right. Unless we, somebody's pushing him. Well, we, we were talking about different movies while we were watching this, and little nods and or things that were the same as other feature films that have nothing to do with either of these properties. Mm-hmm. And I think the big one we hit on the most was Jaws. Yeah. And inside of Jaws, what you cannot deny, you cannot deny, is that the chase sequences inside of that film are exquisite. Mm. Even though they're done by a shark that couldn't move more than 45, 50 feet at a time. Well, those chase scenes, you're not even seeing the shark right. during the chase that, scenes. Exactly. What you're seeing is a speeding boat. You're seeing the tide the tide through barrels. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing master acting class from a variety of different people, in particular acting, the ones on the boat. Cinematography and score, because the score Without makes question. makes makes you feel like you're in a chase. Without question, yeah. the the the, uh, the barrel runs inside of Jaws, and that score that's going on during that wow. is just some of John Williams' most exquisite work. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's one of the most underappreciated items with the dun. But then when you get into those super impactful action moments, that it, it has a pulse, thanks to John Williams. Yes. Yeah. It, that, that is the magic of something like that that it was obviously missing inside of this film because you don't have you obviously don't have John Williams right but what you do have is a, an absolute nod or a hearkening back to those things and I think that the motorcycle the, the uh, motorized motorcycle sets they give you that that action ability mm, that yes. would not have been there right him pushing on the wheels as fast as possible not nearly as awesomely manic as it's essentially a dirt bike. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he gets to speed away as fast as humanly possible. There's no there is no action in Cycle of a Werewolf. It is all very uh, a creature stalking you in the night and wow. Wow. what's going to happen this month. Because we only focus on when the moon is full in the book. Right. Because that's when stuff is going to happen. Mm. Uh, with with exception, there's a handful of exceptions. There's there's two or one or two chapters that actually take place either right before or right after the full moon yep. and give you some insight into some of the other characters of Tarker's Mill or more insight into what actually is going on, what the werewolf is and and who the werewolf is. But for the most part, every chapter focuses on when the moon is full and somebody's somebody or something is about to die. Mm. Whereas in the film they they handled it uh, just a little bit differently, and we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And, and I'm really excited to talk about that because the change in how a werewolf is a werewolf in this movie is one of the reasons why this film sticks out from all the other 80s werewolf movies. And like I said, we'll get to that in a little bit. Reverend Lester Lowe. In the book, Lowe is just another person in Tarker's Mill, until he learns that he is the beast. In the movie, Lowe is just another person in Tarker's Mill balancing his affliction until he's injured 
by Marty. Thereby marking the beast, right? Oh, yeah, hey, yes, very, very. But in, in both cases, we mark the beast. Marty is the, the marker of the beast, both in the book and in the movie. Mm. Handled... Sim- with a rocket each time? No, but with fireworks. Mm. See, in the book, because he does not have a motorized wheelchair, Uncle Al tells him, wait till everybody's asleep, go outside into the backyard, and shoot off the ones that aren't noisy. Mm. Stay between the house and the woods, you'll be fine. So he's right by the house. And when the werewolf, the beast, comes out of the woods and stalks Marty, all he has left in his bag because he didn't bring along the loud ones is a gross of firecrackers so he lights the firecrackers and throws it into the werewolf's face and that's how Mm. his eyeball is blown out okay now in the movie because you've got this nice little souped up getaway vehicle you can go far away from the house and be able to have your fun with the loud fireworks Mm. but then you get to have something a little bit more dramatic like a rocket Mm mm-hmm Zooming towards a werewolf's face and, and puncturing his and eye. And a chase scene. And a chase scene. Yeah. And a, a pseudo chase scene. Right. He's uh, running uh, for his uh, life. Gotta get away scene. Yeah. 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 Like I said, where the the book is concerned, action-wise, it's not high on action. Mm-hmm. It's it's more tension and mood. Right. Whereas you can have action with this with the with the film. Yeah, the more we talk about this, the more that I, I think what I see is I see a whole lot of action thrown into a movie that originally did not have action. Mm-hmm. as a centerpiece that almost that is step. true going back to the character of reverend Lowe, one of the big questions is how did he become a werewolf and stephen king being being the the brilliant yet ashholeless writer that he is doesn't explain it at all in either versions in the in cycle of a werewolf Lowe ponders on how this happened to him because he doesn't know it just happened one night one night he he, he remembers waking up feeling really, really jazzed, really charged, better than he's ever felt before. And it took a while for him to realize, oh, something's happening at the full moon. I think I'm responsible. And he thinks back to, well, well, maybe it was visiting that graveyard and seeing those strange uh, flowers that I picked that turned black before I could even get him back to my car. Again, not an explanation but a possible explanation. But 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 that still doesn't even make any sense. Flowers? How do you become a werewolf from flowers? Well, I don't know, but it makes it makes your mind race with all the possibilities. In the film, there's no conversation about it. I'm kind of okay with that. And yes, the, the, there doesn't need to be an explanation. Mm-hmm. I've said this in many episodes of two guys talking horror, especially when you're when when you're talking about trying to explain the monster, you take away the mystery of the monster. Mm-hmm. Not knowing how a reverend, somebody, a man of God, gets afflicted with something that turns him into a bloodthirsty animal and kills people indiscriminately. Trying to figure that out in my head is more interesting than somebody telling me a story of, oh, well, this is how it happened. Right. It's it's the same thing with midichlorians. Oh, God. Yes. Perfect example. Trying to explain the force is awesome. Explaining the force is not awesome. Right, yeah, yeah. Sheriff Joe Haller. In the book, Sheriff Haller is actually called Constable Neary, an overweight local cop kept out of the murder investigations by the state police. In the movie, Sheriff Haller 
is heading the investigation, but coming up empty-handed, much to the town folk's dismay. Now, even though he's not an important character at all in the book, he's got one chapter that's kind of devoted to him because he gets killed, I wanted to bring up the character of Sheriff Haller because in the film, Sheriff Haller is played by Terry O'Quinn. Mm-hmm. And Terry O'Quinn is, is just a superb actor, period. Okay. He's been in every genre of film mm-hmm. there is to think of. And memorable every time And he memorable, yes, exactly. Doesn't memorable every single time. Mm-hmm. But I love his offerings every time he's a part of the horror-slash-thriller genre. Mm-hmm. Because there is something about the way the man acts. Carries himself. It, yeah, it, it's, yeah I agree he's that. a different character every single time. Mm-hmm. It's not, oh, it's Terry O'Quinn being another character. It's, here's another character that Terry O'Quinn happens to play. Yeah. And yeah. this is actually one of his earliest film roles, mm-hmm. is, is Silver Bullet in, right. in 85. Uh, in 87, he goes on to, uh, to, to star in... The Stepfather, which I believe is his breakout role because he started getting more well-known after that film. Uh, but yet again, another horror uh, offering from Terry O'Quinn. Not only that, but but the character deaths are quite different from book to, to movie. Mm. Constable Neary spends his day bitching and moaning while sitting in the barber shop talking to some of the locals about how this case will be cracked by using uh, good old-fashioned police work and psychology. It's not a werewolf like little Marty says it is. It's somebody who's who thinks he's he's a wha- he's a wacko, and on the full moon he comes out and, and he murders. thinks that he's a werewolf and murders people. Well, that night of the full moon, while Constable Neary's sitting out uh, out on some dirt road doing a speed trap, well, he learns that werewolves are real. Because he gets his face ripped off by the werewolf. In the movie, he gets killed by the werewolf, but he gets beaten to death with a baseball bat, a, a broken baseball bat. So, I mean, he doesn't even get clawed and chewed up by a werewolf. Yeah, but the peacemaker. Yeah. The, the werewolf beats him to death with a baseball bat. Now, I'm sorry. In horror, Where horror movie kills are concerned, beaten to death by a werewolf. Not killed by a werewolf. You were beaten to death by a werewolf. You don't see that in many places. You don't see that in any movie, man. Important story beats. Cycle of the moon versus the fuller the moon gets. Now, one of the biggest differences between the book and the movie is that the book is the cycle of the werewolf. So it follows the cycle of the moon. Right. Stephen King does actually write a nice little preface of, uh, for any astrology fans or people who follow the moon, yes, I took quite a bit of liberties when writing this story because he made the moon full when he needed it to be for the story. He didn't go, okay, so in 30 days the moon gets to be full again. No, no, none of that crap. <laughs> none of that crap. You know, none of that, none of that was none focusing of that science on crap. science and, you know, you know. <laughs> But if we were to transfer that to a film, it would be a very long film because your, your werewolf's only going to transform once a month. The brilliant thing that they do so that they can have more peril and a, and a higher body count in the film is they come up with the concept of as the moon gets fuller, the man gets wolfier. And that's a direct quote from the movie. 
So, one could believe that there are certain times where Reverend Lowe can control himself and not turn into the wolf when the phase of the moon is at its lowest. You know, but as the moon gets fuller, he's going to lose more and more of that control. Mm -hmm. And I think that's brilliant because now you, you don't have a killer that's only going to show up once a month. You have the possibility of having a killer that shows up Every night. Who might still have a little bit of conscience left in him. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I, I dig that as well. And I, I, I think the other thing it helps, too, is it helps to condense the story, but it also makes it where police officers don't look nearly as stupid. Mm. Because instead of drawing it out an entire year where, hey, month number four is going to go by and can't wait for the full moon for someone to get murdered again. Right, right, right. You don't, you don't have the waiting dance of what we would be waiting for you also don't have where if we've got to kill off the sheriff in one of the full moons well who takes over for the sheriff and then who takes over for the deputies that get killed mm. and then who takes over when the deputies and the sheriff are killed right and why hasn't the fbi come yeah why why, why don't the, we have the, all why don't we have state police here yeah the the escalation of law enforcement was never going to be part of the story anyway so i don't i don't have dreams of avarice of that but it is a piece of the story that had to somehow get taken care of and the way to do it is to condense the time that the story is told yeah. in. and he I, he did it masterfully i thought it yeah. was great it the only thing that gets gone is that mystique of the cycle of the werewolf where you could go wow 12 months an entire year of terror that's really cool mm -hmm. it's just not nearly realistic right especially if, for if, a film well, although nowadays you could probably pull it off if you did a a mini series or a 12 or, episode or, or a period piece or you, oh yeah or a period you go piece. back into like the ancient west and you start doing something that takes a year long mm. where there's not automobiles for people to run around in and horses also getting murdered and a bunch of other things then you can try and extend the cycle of the werewolf into something that's much longer that would take much more investigation that the technology and the processes just don't exist yet <laughs> Silver Bullet! Exclamation point. <laughs> Too true. In the book, the Silver Bullet is what they use to kill the werewolf at the end of the story. Mm -hmm. Marty doesn't have a souped-up wheelchair. But in the movie, the Silver Bullet is two things. It is his wheelchair, his, his motorized wheelchair, and what they use to kill the monster at the end. And I, I think... And you've talked about it earlier about the, uh, the the ability to have a chase scene in in the film. You know, Mar Marty can actually go places to where he, if he did not have a souped up wheelchair, it would be very localized and and, and boring. Well, more he'd importantly, be, he'd be a sitting duck. More importantly, the kid can go places. Right. It, it instantly takes the kid into something that can be a larger platform for character storytelling. Yeah. So I I, I the more we talk about that, the more I think even more. That's why that was added in. It's, mm. a, it's a mechanical element that could only do more things in the vein of cinematography mm. for a feature film, so why aren't we doing it? Right. And Stephen goes, you know what? I can do that. And he wrote it in. The Hunting Party. In the book, townspeople head out into the woods determined to kill whatever the beast is. In the movie... The character of Andy Fairton, the local gun store owner and loudmouth, declares that Sheriff Haller can't find the killer, so he rounds up the townspeople and basically forms a lynch mob. Posse, yeah. They, mm -hmm. It forms a posse, yeah. Pretty much leads a whole bunch of people to the deaths. Yeah. 
This was a very interesting scene. And this is, again, when we start talking about this, imagine if this story, along with some of the other elements we were talking about, was pulled off in the Old West. Mm. This would be very interesting. And one of those wonderful mixums that they had back in the in the late 90s where they were able to take westernized concepts mm-hmm. and smash them together with uh, with horror films like Van Helsing and what was the one with Matt Damon and the the the, the uh, he was one of the brothers the brothers Grimm oh yeah yeah that that where they've it's much more western where I'm not kidding you take out the western stunts and the cowboy punches and the <laughs> breaking chairs over people's backs and that's all those were well yeah. you could do something very much the same here with the storytelling and because you're backing it up into the ancient west you can pull off a lot of these things where you know we're, we're gonna we're gonna round up and serve some private justice yep. no problem well, when they do that end they're all dead yeah and yep. it absolutely pays off because not only is it more mystique for the werewolf to just go and pick these people off at random, it's because there's you're going backwards in time, and all of the handles of technology and accountability, those also go out the window as you go further back in time, right. too. Right. I think that's something that I notice in here is that one of the things that, I won't say you never see it, but you would be less likely to see now inside of modern-day America, is somebody having an argument with a deputy in full uniform in a bar. Yeah. It's a super tilt moment where nowadays, I just don't think so. Not I, only that, but the deputy backing down from the citizen. Right, right. Uh, that and the, that they're both drunk and having a drunken argument. It, it just, it, because of the way law enforcement works nowadays, it can't work that way now. Right. But if you take that back into the ancient West... And you start talking about where a deputy is now off duty and he can kind of do what he wants and still be the deputy. Okay, well, then it still works and you're much more likely to take it in. That's how I was able to take this one in is that it's that mid 80s where, you know, you've you've just come out with the Blues Brothers where you make an entire city's department force of Chicago (laughs) look like idiots. So, okay, so we're willing to take a few for the for, for the Blue Bears here. But all of the stuff that you see from law enforcement, including the divine death of Terry O'Quinn inside of this, is all a bit sketchy. Uh, I know that if I'm out there and I'm looking for, even if it's only a murderer, of a mass murderer now, by the way, and my town is rife with murder, I don't know that I'm going anywhere alone. I don't know that I'm going anywhere without a drawn weapon. I don't know well, that... Well, he did draw the weapon. A he little, did. A little, little... Uh, he did, and he didn't pull the trigger, though. Didn't I pull mean, the trigger, no, no. What What else does he need to see besides, oh, hey, look, changeling changeling reverend with poked-out eye, not-so-awesome bang. Well, you gotta, you got to look <laughs> at it this way. The story, the, the book story, doesn't really give a time period. Right. The movie, though, does take place in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. So, not really not that far away from the time that it was written. True. But it's also a small town. And all these small towns, at least in literature, all these small towns were very tight-knit. Sure. Where everybody knew everybody else's secrets, in, but they in, all just incestuous. kept their mouths shut. Incestuous. Absolutely. And, and I that's that. and, and I feel... Still that. They're still that They are still towns. that. But there's now Wi-Fi, so you don't really have to worry about... The, the, the information travels a lot faster now. And Stephen King is really good at... Like I said earlier, creating that small town feel, mystique, both right. in the book and in in the movie. I agree. 
in defense of the police department of Tarker's Mills, I would like to believe that Terry O'Quinn's character, the Sheriff Haller, the story that Red told him of, well, Reverend Lowe's a werewolf. Well, remember, he said that's that's got to be the most outrageous story I've ever heard. You know, I, I can't believe any of that, but I will go and check things out. So that's why he went alone. I mean, I can I can write some of that stuff off. That also goes into the whole gathering a posse scene. In the book, they head out into the woods to hunt the creature. But the thing is, by this time in the book, Lowe knows he's the creature. So he's leaving town. He's going to... He's going to head out of town about a good 20, 30 miles so that whatever he does isn't around Tarker's Mills. Now, the ironic thing about it is, is that he actually kills somebody from Tarker's Mill who also was out of town for a little while. In the movie, though, it's just a full-on posse, and people are marched to their deaths because mm-hmm. they're st- be- be- it's, all, it's the uh, alpha male syndrome. Mm-hmm. We're going to go in there, we're going to go in there with guns, and we're going to be able to take it out because we're smarter than the average bear or werewolf. No. No, you're not. No, you're not. Mm -hmm. And at least five or six people were killed because of the stupidity. Well, one of the things, this is where we kind of bring real-world science into what we're talking about here, kind of, is that for those that haven't ever either seen some of the raw video or heard the breakdown of what actually happens when say a lion attacks a person the the mass of a creature that would be like a werewolf mm-hmm. is it is just so night and day difference mass wise outright uh, I, I would kind of compare it to when you hold a kitten you when you hold a kitten you can feel how fragile it is and you can pretty much do whatever you want to a kitten right now yeah if if you chose you could put it under your foot and crush it and it, it, nothing could stop you that's exactly what happens with these very large in in the case of lions cats is that when they've got you they've got you yeah. i mean there's the that whole thing of you're going to try and gouge their eyes out or you're going to you're going to earbox them and somehow get away from them or <laughs> what whatever the the newest myth is to try and escape a, a a lion attack you're pretty much done yeah you usually get taken by the neck mm-hmm. you, you blood usually spurts out of your neck and you go unconscious and you will never know what happened to you but what does happen to you is that they drag you off like any other small game and they tend to eat you or at least some of you mm-hmm. and that's it and it's yeah. over because that's nature and it's one of the it is that in the back of your mind horrific piece that works inside of a werewolf tale oh yeah is that if there was a creature that could do anything that it wanted to you right now and you could do nothing that's exactly what we're talking about here and that's what I, for those of you that have never thought of that, now you will. And now when you go and see movies like this, you will have a completely different appreciation for them. Fireworks. Now in the book, Uncle Al gives Marty a bag of fireworks, mm-hmm. but tells him to stay close to the house. Don't light any of the noisy ones. And then Marty is attacked by the werewolf and tosses a package of firecrackers into the werewolf's eye and it explodes and that's how he's able to get away the werewolf runs off now in the movie marty lights off loud fireworks because he's got his nice little souped up 
wheelchair so we can go far away from the house. On the bridge, right. Mm-hmm. And when he's attacked by the werewolf, he's got that nice rocket, mm-hmm. and he aims the rocket, holding the rocket in his hand, aims the rocket, and it hits home into, into the werewolf's eye. Now, I know we've touched on this scene in both the book and the movie, uh, talking about things earlier, but one of the things that I know we wanted to talk about, especially joking about it while we're watching the movie, is the stupidity of children. Oh, yeah. And fireworks. Yeah, and I'm not. we're not talking about any children. We're talking about us. Oh, yeah, us, us I, I, specifically. I was an admittedly dumb kid with fireworks, <laughs> and how I still have all of my fingers and hands, uh-huh. I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, how I'm not missing an eyebrow permanently is absolutely <laughs> beyond me. I don't know um, how I'm not missing an eyeball. Yeah, but between packs of matches, between boxes of matches, between lighters of every kind that you can imagine. All shapes, sizes, and colors. All, every single one of them, including a Zippo that I borrowed, wink, wink, not judge, from my uncle. <laughs> every manner of firework from the little uh, white, wispy things that you throw on the ground and they kind of crackle. Yeah. Everything from those to giant, back then, M80s. M80s. <sighs> Just absolute death if they were to blow up anywhere around you. Yeah. We were absolute shenanigan makers back then. So I, I enjoyed watching this, frankly, because it reminded me of being a kid. I think it, it's also what has made me now as, as a now 48-year-old man. I'm not firework averse. Mm-hmm. But the only thing I do in regard to fireworks is go watch them put on by cities. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think that I missed out. I'll watch out. somebody else do it now. Yeah. That's that's what I do. I missed out enough on all of the stuff that I really should have paid for. And so I don't want to get anywhere near them. Like have them in my house and the house gets set on fire. Or right. I, I have my last three ever M80s and one of them decides to skip the wick and just blows up in my hand. Whatever. I, I want to skip all that. Now, I do have to say this. In the book, Uncle Al does give Marty suggestions on how to handle the fireworks, uh, including the bottle rockets. Get yourself an empty Coke bottle, and you can shoot off your bottle rockets. There was a little bit of... Guidance. Guidance. There was a little bit of responsibility (laughs) from the adult... A tutorial. uh, From the adult giving the small, (laughs) handicapped child fireworks... I don't want you to hurt yourself, kid. I love you. Isn't, so use a use an empty Coke bottle. Right? Isn't it though where they would just go look? The kid's cripple already. What is he going to do? Cripple himself some more? And I mean, you would if you if you were holding onto a rocket. Nothing good happens. Nothing. No, well, you, you stop a werewolf. <laughs> you stop a werewolf attack. Because luckily, it doesn't blow up in your hand as it as it rockets away. It doesn't set your hand or your flesh on fire as it rockets away towards the werewolf. How about that? How's he going to climb the lattice back up into his room if he doesn't have a hand? He's numb with Call fear. Call Stumpy. Well, one-handed, yeah. Well, it, wow. It, we just, that went dark. <laughs> the confrontation. In the book, Marty and Uncle Al sit up on New Year's Eve, as the rest of the family sleeps, waiting for the werewolf to attack. Mm. In the movie, Uncle Red sends Marty's parents away for the weekend so he, Jane, and Marty can face the werewolf on Halloween night. Yeah. I'm so glad the parents listened to the drunkard uncle. You know, y'all need to get out of here. Well, Bye. see, now in the book, in the book, Uncle Al is not a drunkard. Oh. He's just... But in the movie, he Uncle is. Al, well, yeah. All right, time to get out. Bye. Well, if you got a, a free weekend to New York, 
Wouldn't you take it? <laughs> I guess. I'd take it. From if, all the money that Uncle Al had? Think think of, uh, now you need to put yourself in the place <laughs> of the parents. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I get a chance to not only get away from my kids, because we all know parents love their kids, but they also love the opportunity <laughs> to be able to get away from them sure. every now and then. Yeah. I, I'm, Especially I'm not, away from the kids that are in the city where, what, untold numbers of people have been murdered over the course of the last four and a half months. Well, that's another Let's thing. Sure to leave them here. I get to leave awesome. this horrible <laughs> town that's got a killer roaming around. <laughs> and leave my kids with drunkard uncle. Well, but it's on him. It's on and him if something go. happens. Exactly. <laughs> the thing that I like to take away from this, though, is that in the book, the confrontation takes place on New Year's Eve. Mm. In the movie, it takes place on Halloween. Mm. Both holidays and holidays that fall at the end of a month. Mm. Mm. Okay. So in my mind, it's Stephen King trying to mold the screenplay story to end as closely as it can to the book story while still living in this new universe that he's created for the movie. Because the characters of Marty's family are very different than in the book. What little we get to know about them in the book, they're, they're, they're basically parents who are hiding the fact that they have a burden. Taking care of a crippled child is a burden to them, but they can't show that it's a burden because then that makes them bad people. Now, of course, their, their daughter gets to bitch and moan about, oh, well, my brother, the cripple. But it's okay. She's a kid. She'll grow up. Now, in the movie, the parents are portrayed as, we're not necessarily going to baby Marty, but yeah, he is going to get a little bit spoiled because, yeah, look at all the strikes that have been thrown against him already in life. It's the differences that I appreciate because I don't like Marty's parents mm -hmm. in the book. Sure. Marty's parents in the movie, a little bit more relatable. Interesting. I think that the change out to Halloween might have been a nod to E.T. Because E.T. also capitalized on there being an insertion of Halloween. Well, now this does too. No. And Halloween just came out in 78. Mm -hmm. So it was still very popular. I, I believe it had already, yeah, the sequel had already come out. So, I mean, Halloween was a nice place to end mm -hmm. something on. You you would. Oh, and it's werewolves. Where on earth in the span of a year would you put werewolves? And the answer is. Halloween, right. without question. But it's also easier, and this is this is another reason why I believe that they condensed the time period of the story. It's also easier not to have to worry about shooting with snow. Fair. You know? Fair. Filmmaking-wise, if well, this was... motorized wheelchair-wise. Well, again, remember. Well, I mean, if snow, we were going to have... chains on the wheelchair. Uh, yes, no chains. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is the Silver Bullet Mark Plow. Three. It's a it's a snow cat, <laughs> right? Yeah. Snow cat. <laughs> to make money in the in the in the winters, Marty actually plows snow with his super mega silver bullet. And and three. that's that's how Marty when Marty grows up, that's he's going to be the plow king of Mister Plow, no, Northern Maine. <laughs> they know his name from here to Castle Rock. <laughs> Well, we've had a lot of fun so far, but right now we're going to push to break and we're going to come back and we're going to finish up. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can. With perpetual advertising, here's how it works. 
Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Darkly Enchanted Objects The trio of heroes who have decided to find them all. You remember this series from the 1980s. You just don't remember the name. Check out the Curious Goods Podcast. A retelling, a revisit, and complete educational detailing of each episode of Friday the 13th, the series. Check it out now at CuriousGoodsPodcast.com. That's CuriousGoodsPodcast.com. Everyone knows you'll spend at least double the time you use to create the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the got-to-get-it-right factor. And, well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com, because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the Versus Machine. As you know, we are talking about Cycle of the Werewolf versus Silver Bullet, both penned by the great Stephen King. Themes. Like all Stephen King stories, whether they deal with a monster that is a werewolf or a vampire or the monster that is man... It's usually very simple. His themes usually boil it down real simple. It's good versus evil. Oh, yeah. Uh, you don't have to get any more complicated. You could, but you don't have to get any more complicated than that. It's always good versus evil. And King does good versus evil in some sometimes the most abstract of ways. I agree. This is not one of them. And it doesn't come to you in the in the book until later on, until you know who all the players are, until you know that Marty is going to be your white knight facing the monster at the castle gate. And you find out that Reverend Lowe, the man of God, is actually your wolf in sheep's clothing. The town itself, not, not so much in the film, but definitely in the book, the town is is portrayed as... A tight-knit, God-fearing, hard-working town. As a matter of fact, in the book, there's only one character that pops up, not counting Reverend Lowe once you find out that he is actually the werewolf. There's only one character that pops up who's a bad person, and he's, he's a chronic wife beater. He's the local librarian. He's been beating his wife for years, and she lives in terror. Yet... Towards the end of the book, 
Uh, and we talked about this uh, during the confrontation scene. In, in the book, when the townsfolk go into the woods to hunt the monster, Lo leaves town and goes to a motel about 20, 30 miles outside of town. Well, it just so happens that this character, this, this bad character, is also at that motel with his mistress and ends up getting killed by hmm. the werewolf. So... See, that, that's, a, that's a dark Stephen King cue. Exactly. You've got, cue. you've got this horrible yeah. character that keeps popping up and just mentioning him ever, ever yeah. so often, peppered mm-hmm. throughout the story. And then, just before the ending, this guy gets his comeuppance. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, that, it's that little evil grin that King... I could just imagine as King's writing, he had that evil grin when he was writing those words. Yeah. And, it, it, and his it, head was torn straight off of its body. It's exactly what happens inside of each of the stories that are featured in something like Creepshow. Mm. There is that legitimate, outright horror pieces parts that are happening... And then at the end, there is the evil grin moment. Mm-hmm. There's no question. Right. That, that, that grinchy grin. Really, the theme is made even more clear when you contrast Marty and the werewolf when you have Reverend Lowe there as well. Because now it kind of becomes this, this, this triangle. Reverend Lowe is not a bad person. There's just bad circumstances around him. Until he finds out what he really is. Then we get into the evil of man, because now he starts to justify what he is. The line, and it's almost word for word, it appears in the book and in the movie, where uh, Lowe says, everything fits the will and the mind of God. You know, in the movie, he killed a woman who was about to commit suicide and she was pregnant. Her soul would be burning in hell. I might have taken her physical body but I saved her life eternal. Did her a favor, right? Yeah, I did her a favor. But Mm -hmm. you still murdered her. Right. Once you start getting into the justifications, now the lines blur between the monster and the man, and there is no more line. Yeah. Whether he's furry or not, he's still just just a monster, while Marty continues to stay pure. And one of the great things about the book is that even at the end, even when he's about to be mauled to death by... The werewolf. Marty says, I know it's not your fault. And shoots Reverend Lowe and says, says I'm sorry. And there's still all, all of that goodness of Marty to put Lowe out of his misery. When you think about it, the sil- silver, silver's the one thing that can kill a werewolf. The purity of silver is why it's supposed to be able to kill a werewolf or even hurt monsters. Because in some lore... Silver also hurts vampires as well because of its purity. Now, look at Marty. Here's here's a boy who is paralyzed but doesn't let it get him down. Th- there's this innocence about Marty. That's not necessarily portrayed in the film. It's not. It's not the, the attitude and, and push towards the murder. And it is. The murder of the priest is completely different. But we're murdering we're him saying. when he's a monster, so there's True. some leeway. Right. Right. At least in, in, in my monster kid mind, there's yeah. a little leeway. <laughs> there, there is an excellent song by Metallica called Of Wolf and Man. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm, I'm certain that you've probably heard yes. either some of the lyrics or the, the guitar riffs from it. We'll, we'll include the lyrics to that song. And inside of that song, which you'll, you'll hear many of the things that I think probably lend yourself to Wolfman, wolf things. Yeah and the mystique of Wolfman and a lot of the themes that we see inside of this film, whether it's outright blunt over the head or that 
tertiary factoid that's going on inside of commonalities for werewolves. That 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 song is wonderful. It, it's not just a great rocking song. Yeah, the lyrics are really really well thought out, and they, you know, they they rise up an animal inside of you when you when you listen to them. They're that evocative, and I, I think that's what drifts me towards anything that is werewolf. It's that the fundamental rage machine thing mm-hmm. that that happens the only difference is that instead of j- just being rage it's a cycle that has to happen because nature says it will yeah. and you turn into this animal mm. that's very interesting in the anyway the, the lyrics inside of that song they talk about a lot of the things that i think we're talking about and referring to here inside of just the general theme of what we're seeing inside yeah. of this film especially the evil part final thoughts Going into this, you th- thought you were watching one movie, and it turns out it you're watching completely something yeah. completely new. Totally. So you were able to enjoy this movie for the very first time. Mm-hmm. You've you've listened to me talk about the the similarities and and the differences mm-hmm. between the movie and the book. First of all, I want to know your thoughts on the movie. I really enjoy the concept of what the movie was gonna be. Mm-hmm. I think when you take the caricatured art of Gary Busey. And the kind of, you know, the the almost lollipop want there was wanting to be for Marty versus what is supposed to be something horrific. It works because it's a Stephen King property and it takes it dark. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't Stephen King and it wasn't written as dark, this would be a really bad movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, That they're able to dig deep in some of the parts that are really good and dark. And you add on things like Terry O'Quinn. The, the silver bullet is such a misnomer inside of this. It, it's clearly just a MacGuffin that's been added into the film that wasn't even inside of the original, the original writings for the yeah, story. Yeah. So we know that. And the fact that the, the vehicle of conveying him from point A to point B to point C all throughout this story is called the silver bullet as well. I don't. I, I'm not going to put words into Stephen King's mouth, but I'm wondering if, on some subconscious level, if that's the reason why they named the wheelchair Silver Bullet. I think it's possible. I think also that the, the Silver Bullet becomes the secret weapon, and for everybody that has ever had a bicycle, you know that mm. the entrance to Valhalla when you are a teenager is the Silver Bullet of your bicycle. Wow. Mean, there's no doubt about it. The difference is that Marty's bicycle had four wheels right or in right. one case three wheels three wheels the other one four wheels uh add in that they took the the brave moment to make it where is it actually being narrated by a woman i enjoyed that i i think that 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 really fell down in the middle though because you you don't really know what's going on and it becomes almost a central focus mm. on Corey hames character marty inside of this uh isn't it funny that this is the same year that earlier in the year marty mcfly was taking the world by storm. <laughs> so I I get what they were trying to do here. They were absolutely trying to take a variety of different genres and shove it together, take the original story and alter it so that it would be spun into more interesting things based on where pop culture was, based on the storytelling ability of both the director and Stephen King. Mm. I just don't know it was terribly effective. Uh, somehow, someway, I discovered this movie as a child, mm-hmm. and fell in love with it. I think it had 
a lot of factors. Uh, Marty being in a wheelchair. My grandmother was in a wheelchair, so I, I had that. I was like, I, oh, this kid's in a wheelchair, too. I, I, my grandmother's in a wheelchair. Okay. Well, wouldn't that be interesting if my grandmother could have a really souped-up wheelchair like that? that she'd, she'd be able to go all over the place. The family dynamic. The goofball uncle. The religious undertones. All of these things had an impact on me because I could relate to them in real life. Plus the cheese. I love the cheese. The older I get, the more I appreciate the cheese of this movie. Because there are so many different werewolf movies out there now. And not all of them have the heart that this movie has. At least in my mind. But I'm wearing rose-tinted glasses Mm -hmm. when I look at the movie. Sure. Now, where the book is concerned, the book, I, I found the book later in life. I was I was in my teens and discovered it at my local library, of all places. Mm. And I grew up, my teenagers, I grew up in a podunk little town in, in southern Missouri. And so where was the light bulb moment that this is the making of Stephen King, both in this and the feature film that you loved? I didn't. When was that? It was halfway through the book when I was introduced to Marty Kozlaw when he was in, who was in a wheelchair. I'm like, mm. holy shit, this is Silver Bullet. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you know, I, I rush through the rest of it, and then I read it again, and I'm like, wow, okay, real different. But at that point in my life, I also wasn't studying film the way that I did as I got older. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know that Stephen King wrote the screenplay mm. for Silver Bullet. Yeah. I did not own a copy of Silver Bullet at the time. It was not available. Uh, I could not afford a VHS copy. Now, luckily enough, you know, DVD came around and... They started putting all those great movies out there, and I was able to grab myself a copy. And then, as I've gotten older, I can now appreciate both stories. But I think I appreciate them equally and differently because it's Stephen King in both, but he's saying something just a little bit different in each telling of it. Mm -hmm. After all this going through uh, the story, would you ever be interested in reading the story? Or at least listening to an audio version of it. I would definitely be interested in... I would definitely listen to an audio version just because I'm an audiophile. Right, yeah, yeah. But I would definitely be interested in taking in what was the original treatment for this. Especially now seeing what especially what, now. what the the yeah. adaptation was. Especially Good. now, especially because this is not the movie that I thought it was. Hmm. Uh, I'm Somewhere between Wolfen and... The Howling. And the Howling, there is a series of memories that are put together that were way more horrific than anything that I'd seen inside of this. Oh, yeah. This is tame compared to those yeah. other movies. Yeah. yeah. So, I, again, this isn't this isn't quite a bubblegum film for me, but it's it, this is kind of the wax figure ape that you get at Chicago's Brookfield Zoo. Mm, okay. Compared to, say, a real ape, which would be a, a, a real <laughs> horror film. Yeah. You can look at it and go, hey, look, it's shaped like a gorilla. Awesome. Look, it looks like it's beating its chest, but it's stationary. Interesting. That's what I get from this film instead of a, a full-on, oh, my God, look at it. It's a gorilla from Gorillas in the Mist. You, you follow me? Yeah, I get you. Okay. I get you. Those are our thoughts, but we want to know what you think. What are your thoughts on Cycle of the Werewolf and or Silver Bullet? Let us know by heading over to versusmachine.com, fill out the contact form, and let us know. Tell us your memory. Share with us. We want to know what you think. Until next time, I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, one of your hosts. I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of the guest hosts. And until next time, the machine is now off. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Versus Machine Podcast on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Be sure to like us on Facebook and share your thoughts on this and other episodes inside our online archive of programs that span a wide variety of genres. It's all about comparison, and we want to know what you think. The links to do all of this and show notes for this episode are available at versusmachinepodcast.com. That's versusmachinepodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and provide us with your thoughts and contrasting opinions to keep the gears of the Versus Machine running. Power down. A little bit chalky. Can you speed through that quick? I I could, or I could just edit it to make me sound like I'm speaking faster. Huh. I, I like the. I, I sound like William Shatner before I edit, and then when I edit myself, you don't. I don't. You, it, it just shows me that you, you sound don't really... like Sulu. Shields, shields, shields. Oh my! <laughs> I did not order that pina colada. <laughs> you're you're a peach. I love working with you. <laughs> I don't get this I don't get the second chair often. Uh, <laughs> sir. <laughs> oh, so what you're saying is should I use my status as second chair to be a little bit more difficult to work with? Because <laughs> I, sure, sure, I could. Sure, Because I could. I could. I totally could. Look here, Mr. Prickly Pear. <laughs> All right. <clears throat>